Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. In uh, Matthew 22, 36 through 37, we see, um, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, which is Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Here we are in the New Testament where the Pharisees are, they're testing Jesus at this time. They're trying to trip him up, to find him, find some, get him to say something wrong, say something that they can accuse him of, to arrest him. Um, they have just seen in this instance right here when this happens, he's just silenced the Sadducees with his wisdom and his knowledge, and so they're trying to catch him. They throw out this test to him, and his response would have been shocking to them. They hear him say this, this thing, this would have been a shock to the Pharisees, not only because this is a wise response to the question that they're asking, but it is because they know what he's saying. This is, this is a quote. This wouldn't have been, been a foreign statement to them. This wasn't something that they hadn't heard before. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. This is part of the Pentateuch. So I'm sure their eyes got real big and they were surprised that he was going to quote something that they already knew, which, was a really, which really was putting them in their place, essentially. Jesus is adept at answering their charges and, and using God's word to convict. And in this passage, God is commanding us to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Now, how much of our heart, our soul, and our mind is included in all. All, right? <laughs> you can't answer a question with the question, right? No. All, right? It's the whole thing. Everything. It's the whole. All of it. The whole quantity. Every bit of it. All of it. So if we are to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our, every last bit of our mind, the question is, if at some point or some time we are not loving God with all of it, with all of our heart, soul, and mind. What is happening when we're doing that? When the whole of that is not worshiping God, what's happening? Well, it's, it's worshiping something else, right? We see this not only in the statement that Jesus makes from the Pentateuch, but it's also the first of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 23 right? You shall have no other gods beside me. We have a jealous God who demands our worship because he deserves it. It is due him. It is required. When we fall short of that, we, we have false worship and we are committing idolatry. Idolatry 
is a worship of a false god. Now remember, I talked about this in the first lesson, so a couple of weeks ago, our working definition of idolatry. This comes from Brad Bigney's book, his, his definition here, where he says, an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. When we think of idol worship, our minds typically go to the statues and things. Um, and this happens because that's easy to identify. In our mind, we can see that. You see somebody going to a temple, uh, some kind of concrete structure, structure. They have crystals or they have some kind of a thing that they are worshiping. We, that's easy to identify. We can see that. And we can say, well, that's wrong. We know that to be wrong as believers. But in America, we're, we don't see that too much. We're starting to see this more. But especially in the Midwest here in Evansville, we're not seeing people worship those types of things too often. So it, it seems very foreign to us. We know as believers that when we give our adoration and focus on something that is man-made, we know as believers that that is not what God has for us. We know it's wrong. But then this definition of an idol, when we're not seeing people bow down to things like that on the regular basis, we, we don't, we're not doing that, right? We need to see that in our own lives, when we are giving our affections and attentions our adoration to something other than God, that we are doing the same thing that those people are doing. We need to examine our lives. We need to see the idols in our own hearts. So the question then is, if we are not having some type of thing that we are bowing down and worshiping to, we, like we in this room, if we're not doing that, but I'm saying that we have a tendency towards idol worship, what is it that can become an idol? And you can, not a rhetorical question. What are some things that can become an idol to us? Money, yeah. Sports. sports. And our children's sports? I just talked over somebody. Comfort. What is it? Comfort. Yeah, don't step on my toes on that one. That's a, yeah, that's good, yeah. What else? I missed it. Yeah, acceptance, being accepted, being liked, being wanted. Yeah, right. The scary part is, well, so essentially what we've just said is almost anything, pretty much anything can become an idol. And the scary part about that is that even good things, God-given good things can become idols in our life. They can be idols in our hearts. This is why... Idols are so dangerous because they're sneaky and they're def difficult to root out. In this chapter, uh, that, chapter three that we're going over today, Pastor Brad Bigney, he gives the example of serving in the church can become an idol in our lives. We have people in this local body who serve the church very well. And I'm sure you know men and women who are out there, they're serving in, in all kinds of ways, any number of ways. And we know that there are people that we can go to when we need something done. Um, we can call on them. They'll be there, lickety-split, ready to help. 
Um, they are dependable. They're helpful. We may even say, like, man, what would FBC, Faith Bible Church, do? Or what would it be without so-and-so? That isn't necessarily a bad thing or a wrong thing to say. There are people that serve our socks off. We are very thankful. But in this chapter, he reminds us that there can be a dark side to serving. Even, even serving can become an idol. You probably have in your mind people that are great servants here. And I'm not suggesting that serving is an idol in their life. I just want you to know that we can sleep, slip into this thinking that our serving is not just to serve the people here. It's not just to serve the church or serve God, but it can be about a personal purpose of our own. These purposes can be things like, I have a desire to be needed or appreciated. I want to be recognized for the serving that I do. Maybe it's to be noticed and appreciated in a way that we're not noticed and appreciated at home. An idol can be something like you said, like being well thought of. You may want people to say that you are the foundation of FBC. We wouldn't be who we are without you. There's this common experience of too many pastors' families who have a father or a husband that pastors a congregation well. Right? He preaches every week with, with a vigor and a giftedness that, that draws people to the church. It helps people grow. It may be even inspiring. He organizes the church fellowships. He visits the homebound, the sick, the new babies. He leads funerals. He leads the choir, the men's ministry, teaches Sunday school. He runs their outreach program. He meets with folks for counseling, runs the food drives, plays the guitar at VBS, and puts together the youth group curriculum. And he's doing all these great things. All those things, those are wonderful things. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But his family is at home thinking, we'd really love it if dad were here with us. We could use his help here at home. His wife feels like she's raising the family alone. There are things around the house and with the finances or the yard that could use his attention. They even sometimes feel a bit guilty thinking these things because Pastor Dad is serving the church. When he's home, he's either on the phone with people in his congregation who need his help or he's preparing a sermon or he's too tired to be much company. Over time, while his home responsibilities are being overlooked or placed on the back burner, the children are seeing his example and wanting to pull away from the church. Why be a part of something that takes away from us? A wife who's battling bitterness because she feels like an afterthought because she gets the leftovers, right? These are things that we know or we've heard of pastors' families. There's a lot of responsibility on a pastor, there's a lot of things that they are um, expected or required to do. But I'm not saying that doing those things is wrong. I'm not saying that when things get tough, that we've got to quit serving. But what we need to do is examine our heart. We need to clarify why it is we do what we do. And are we serving for the right reasons? We have responsibilities, all of us do in this room. We need to make sure we fulfill our most important obligations to our family and, and uh, those things first. You know, my wife and I had these, kind of, these types of conversations. 
We both serve here uh, happily, and some of the greatest joys that we have experienced in our lives have come from an event or some type of serving that we've done, oftentimes together. Um, We love God and we love his people. But I remember in 2007, uh, my uncle, who was a pastor, he passed away in an accident while on a mission trip to Mexico. He was a pastor in Russell, Kentucky. About five years later, his wife, my aunt, unexpectedly died from a rare sickness that took her life very quickly in a short amount of days. When my wife, Mary Beth, and I, our kids, my family, went to eastern Kentucky for the funeral, um, we were served so well by the people in that church. It struck us at how they um, sacrificially gave to us uh, most of us, they didn't know. Uh, there was a single lady that um, she served in the, uh, I think she like led their worship or something. I can't remember exactly what she did in that church, but both times she moved out of her house for a week so that we could, our, our family could stay there. And she left food, notes of encouragement. She did all these things for us, like gave up her house for a week, went and found some other place to live so that we could go there. And I remember driving back each time uh, this happened, telling Mary Beth and I having this conversation, like, we want to serve like that church that didn't know us. Most of the people there didn't know us, um, but were willing to, to give up their home for a long, significant amount of time um, because they loved us. We were believers. They were believers. They, they loved the church. And so we wanted to do that. But then we found, we come back and we said, we're committed to serve that way. We're going to do that. And we found that over time, we were tempted to do too much to the detriment of our relationship and our family. We found that we love to serve people, and we do. Uh, but there were also this temptation to overlook home responsibilities, and that led to problems. We're faced with this dilemma, is, is serving God and his church and these people, is that the problem or are we the problem? And it took some time of reflection, and prayer, and discussions to get to the root of the issue for us. It was like this red warning light on the dash of our car. You know, we, we'd be happy to be at church and serve, but when we came home, it was hard. Our time together was stressful. We argued, and home life was tense. All this was going on, and it took some time to realize what was really causing the problem. I mean, it can't be serving these people. That can't be the issue. It's got to be something with us. And it's like, oh, it is with us. Because when we, how much we were serving, where we were serving, that wasn't really making the list of where we needed to examine Now, what we did, we weren't rash and decide, okay, we're going to cut out all serving. Just stop serving altogether. If that's the problem, we're going to stop doing it. Now, we didn't isolate ourselves and be alone after prayer and discussion. What we decided was we needed to change the way uh, we were thinking about things. And we did need to put down what are our priorities? How are we spending our time kind of looking at what are the things that we need to do? And then here is the serving that we like to do and what we want to do and how we want to do that, how God's gifted us. And then how can we make these go together? So there was a changing of thinking there for us. There was some cutting out of things. Okay, we can't do this. Um, And it was uh, 
praying on how do I think about the people that we're serving. You know, it was, it was bumpy. It wasn't quick. It wasn't easy. It didn't just fix itself. Um, and, you know, a couple of the, the times what we ended up doing, you know, it was like, okay, as we write these things down, we have these discussions, you kind of try and Christianize things like, okay, maybe I won't do these things that I need to be doing because I am serving God over here. And so then I start to make this look like it's a good thing, but really it's just because it's what I want. I want to be doing that. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of putting lipstick on a pig, right? I'm trying to make it good when it wasn't, right? And it's what we all do. We try to create what we think are better substitutes than what God has for us. When we do that, what we find is more trouble and heartache. We've got to repent of our idolatry to throw off the counterfeit and come back to the genuine McCoy, to God. We need to be reminded of our Savior and to treasure the gospel, the gospel that sets, up from, uh, that, that sets aside from all these idols, we need to work on developing an eye for de- detecting and destroying idols as soon as they begin to creep in. Jeremiah 17.9. This is probably a familiar verse to you. Right? It says the heart is... What? I'm hearing it. Deceitful, right? Uh, some versions say desperately wicked. Um, and it... It's deceitful above all things and desperately sick, desperately wicked. That's what I'm trying to say there. Yeah. Idolatry is not outside of us. Right? Idolatry doesn't come from our circumstances. It doesn't happen to us. Idolatry is not beyond us in some way. The root of idolatry is in our hearts. And this is true of us as believers, sadly. Even though we have a heart of flesh with new desires and a new master, we still have this sin nature that needs to be addressed. According to James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. There's something inside you and inside of me, our passions and desires, that can draw us away from the gospel of God. We all have these desires or similar desires until Christ comes. It's a fact of living in this Genesis 3 world. I told you that we're in this battle, right? In this battle, it's ongoing. You can see this whole heart battle again in Ephesians 4.22 when we're called to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through um, deceitful desires. You know, I I talk to people often who um, are stuck in sin. They recognize what they're doing is sin and it's wrong and it doesn't have the result that they want, but they can't figure out how to get out of it. This is not uncommon. We've all been there, right? Life is hard and sin can be easy to turn to. And then you turn to it and it doesn't fulfill and you want to get out of it and you don't know what to do. They want to, how do we get out of this rut of the sin that I am in? And if you do that long enough, you start to question, am I even a believer? I can't stop it. They want to please the Lord, but when it comes down to it, they aren't doing it. 
Well, what do we do here? Well, you see in Romans 7, Paul says this, I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, we're in good company if Paul has the same experience, right? He wrote most of the New Testament. My, one of my sons was telling me, he's like, Dad, did you recognize how much of the New Testament Paul wrote? I know, a lot. You know, that's great. It's amazing. Like, but this is familiar to us. We've been there. Why do I keep doing the wrong thing? And I don't want to do it. You know, Paul goes on in Romans 8 to tell us that Christ has killed this. He has done the great work on the cross that kills this, but we are left with the vestiges of sin. We have these things that cling so tightly, but we have help and hope, help and hope in the victory of Christ. Idolatry is never satisfied. The, cha- the t- title of this chapter, he titled this Enough is Never Enough. It's, it's, it always wants more. Um, in the Christian Standard Bible, the, that translation, it words Ephesians 4.19 this way. I like this translation, or I like this, the way it translates this. It says, they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. I like this version because it uses the word callous because I think we all can understand how we get calluses, what a callus is and how we get it, right? You start using a hammer and it's working and things are great. Then your hand starts hurting and it's rubbing a hurt. You know, there's a spot on your hand. It rubs it raw and it hurts. We want to stop. Then we got to use the hammer again. We use it more. And over time, that little blister or that rough spot, if we keep using that, becomes calloused and then you don't feel the pain anymore, Right? Become something that now we can use the hammer. All, all men that you know that work with their hands have those types of hands that are calloused and they're tough. It's like, I remember, oh, your dad's not in here. My boys went sledding with uh, Mr. Beer this winter and uh, <laughs> Owen goes, he reached down into the snow with no gloves on and grabbed me this snow. He said, he didn't feel how cold it was. I was like, He's got, he's got strong hands. He's like, yeah, but I did it, and it really hurt. And I was like, well, he works with them. He uses them. He, this is something that, that God has designed in us. Our hearts are not designed to become callous like that, right? Our hearts are not designed to, uh, or not, it, the, the, the way that our hearts should work should not be that we're callous to the things um, of this world, and that's what this is talking about, that they, the, the, the hurt, the pain, the wrong part was not addressed. And so they de- allowed it, allowed it to build up this callousness because they had a desire for more and more. You know, this desire for more and more could be the motto for the American economy. You know, if it weren't for the, our desire for more and more, we wouldn't have the innovations that we've seen. We wouldn't all be, we'd all be in the same houses, the same clothes, and same cars until they fell apart and died. You know, it, it, but but we, we do have a desire for new and better and more and more. 
It's this continual lusting of things we see in movies and heralded as something to follow in the media. People chase after money and sex and power. You see, in verse 22 of Ephesians 4, we're told that the desires for more and more, they are deceitful. They lie to us. They cheat us. Let me give you an example that's prevalent in our world. It's prevalent in our culture. It is something I see often here in Evansville, Indiana. It's something I work with with people here on the regular. Um, And this is all made up. So if I'm saying this and it sounds like you or somebody that you know, it is not. I'm I'm making this up. But this is uh, the the idea is something that I I see a lot. You have a, a man who is married. Maybe he's got a couple of kids. He's a good provider for his family. He goes to work each day, performs his job well. He's liked by his coworkers. His bosses commend him. He goes to church regularly. He, he does, he, um, when he goes to work, goes to work, comes home, spends time with the family. Things are good. Things seem to be happy. Financially, they're doing well. Uh, They're not drowning in debt, but they don't have money growing on trees either, right? They're just comfortable. They're content with what they have there. Uh, They buy the things they need. Every so often, they get to eat out, have some fun, go on a vacation, but they're content. His parents and her parents, they live nearby. The kids are able to spend time with their grandparents. The husband and wife had a good relationship with their in-laws. There's no trouble there. The parent, the husband and wife, they have a good relationship. Seems like that. They have their up and down, ups and downs like every relationship does, but they aren't squabbling and bickering all the time. If you ask the husband um, and the wife, if you ask them like, how does your relationship, they'd say things are good. There's always room for some minor improvement, but they're very happy. But this is where we can see an idol slip in and cause issues. This husband, he has a project at work with a few of his coworkers, and it's quite common. He looks forward to these types of group projects where they get together and solve a problem and be able to present that to their bosses and, and uh, fix, a, fix whatever the issue it is. He looks forward to those types of challenges. And then one day, he's leaving the kitchenette in the office to go back to his desk, and the female coworker that's on his team walks by him into the kitchenette. And it's at at that time that, for some reason, he notices her perfume, and he thinks, oh, she smells nice. Just keeps walking on by. It's this idea, this tiny minuscule of a seed that enters his mind. Over time, he notices that he thinks about her periodically. He notices her more during downtime while he's driving at work. Her face pops into his mind. Starts out very innocent. For him, it's nothing to be concerned about. He's not thinking about committing adultery with her. He just notices her. And now he starts to notice it a little more that he's thinking about her. He tries to fight the thoughts a little bit, but then lets them linger a little bit more. He pushes them to the side and gets back to work. One weekend while lounging around, scanning social media, her profile pops up. He wasn't looking for it. She wasn't reaching out to him. It was just suggested by the corporate algorithm that somehow know what you know and what you like and don't like. He browses her page for a little while, notices some things, and goes on. As time goes on, he thinks his thoughts might be problematic, so he says, I'm just not going to think about her. I'm going to stop that. But the desire is there. He's committed to his wife. He's committed to uphold his vow that he made with her on the wedding day. There are desires. 
He's never crossed that line with the coworker. He's never said anything inappropriate to her. He has never implied anything. He's never had a lingering glance that she's noticed, as far as he knows. He's tried to corral his thinking at work, and he doesn't want to compromise his marriage. He doesn't want to compromise his relationships at work. He doesn't want to compromise his job. So what's he going to do? After some time, a day comes when he's, for whatever reason, feeling especially vulnerable. Maybe he's tired. Maybe uh, things are tough. And he's at home alone. His wife has taken the kids on a play date with another family. Pretty uh, often that, that happens. And he, he doesn't want to go any further with his thinking of this woman. But he's feeling weak. So he opens up his computer and he visits a website. Now, this isn't pornography, okay? It's just with some suggestive pictures. It is some things that allow him to kind of fulfill this desire without actually sinning. I put that in air quotes. The progression over time leads to more time on those sites, and then it progresses to explicit sites. He's now into this pretty regularly. His defenses are down, and he works to spend more time with this woman at work. He maneuvers to be on projects with her. At some point, she opens up to him about some type of issue in her marriage, and so he takes the opportunity to say that his marriage isn't going so well either, and now they have this common bond. Before you know it, they've committed adultery. It wasn't something that happened over, uh, overnight. It wasn't something that happened quickly. It was this progression of like, an idea that led to thoughts, that led to continued thoughts. He toes the line a little bit and more and more and then full-blown adultery. His conscience was stifled. He had built up calluses. He convinced himself that looking at those sites isn't hurting anyone because no one knows about it and it's not bothering. He's not actually doing it. He's not actually committing the sin. His idol of wanting me desired or for pleasure, for something, whatever it is that his idol is, it's reared its head ever so slightly at first. He tried to fulfill it with something small, but the idol was never satisfied. When you give in a little, it may work for some time, but it never gets filled. It wants more and more. Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book to shine a light on our world in this area. It talks about the vanity of life, right? Tommy Nelson has this great study on the book of Ecclesiastes. My small group has done that where you, he'll go down chapters or sections of Ecclesiastes. He talks about it. It's really good. I mean, we've enjoyed it. But um, in Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 8, here's this. says, I said to myself, let's go for it experiment with it, with pleasure, have a good time. But there was nothing to it, nothing but smoke. What do I think of the fun-filled life? It's insane, inane. My verdict on the pursuit of happiness, who needs it? With the help of a bottle of wine and all the wisdom I could muster, I tried to my level best to penetrate the absurdity of life. I wanted to get a handle on anything useful we mortals might do during the years we spend on this earth. Oh, I did great things. I built houses, planted vineyards, designed gardens and parks, and planted a variety of fruit trees in them. I made pools of water to irrigate the groves of trees. I bought slaves, male and female, who had children, giving me even more slaves. Then I acquired large herds and flocks, larger than any before me in Jerusalem. 
I piled up silver and gold, loot from kings and kingdoms. I gathered a chorus of singers to entertain me with song and most exquisite of all pleasures, voluptuous maidens for my bed. Listen to what Brad Bigney says about this in this chapter. He says, be careful as you read this, lest you be unmoved thinking, I don't want flocks, I don't want slaves. What about houses, he said. We can all relate to that, can't we? Who doesn't get excited about building a new house, designing and building and decorating it? Maybe we don't design garden or parks, but what about landscaping, making our yards beautiful? As for slaves... Just substitute the word slave for a dishwasher, a stove, or a dryer. Dryer. So what slaves did, they did the work for you. And the writer of Ecclesiastes acquired large herds and flocks. He says, I piled up silver and gold, loot from kings and kingdoms. I gathered a chorus of singers to entertain me with song. Well, just substitute a surround sound system or a great Spotify playlist, Netflix, YouTube, He continues, and most exquisite of all pleasures, voluptuous maidens for my bed. Oh, how I prospered. He achieves what so many want. He beat everybody else. Much of the materialism in America is driven not by the thing itself, but by the desire to win, to beat somebody else. It's all about the image, to attain what others don't. Our writer understands this. He says, I left all my predecessors in Jerusalem far behind, left them behind in the dust. Now look at the irony in the next phrase. What's more, I kept a clear head through it all. And we say to him, oh, sure you did. See how deceived he is? I kept a clear head through it all. Everything I wanted, I took. I never said no to myself. I gave in to every impulse, held nothing back. I sucked the marrow of pleasure out of every task, my reward to myself for a hard day's work. Then I took a good look at everything I'd done. Slaves, gardens, pools, fruit trees, piled up money, singers. I looked at the sweat and hard work. But when I looked and saw nothing but smoke, smoke and spitting into the wind, there was nothing to any of it, nothing. It's the same today. Just look around the music, entertainment, and sports worlds. There's a slice of our culture that has supposedly arrived, Brad says. They have everything that we chase so hard after, yet they're unhappy. They still want more. You can see in social media, magazines, television, documentaries, they serve up a continual stream of celebrities whose lives have been destroyed by alcohol and drug abuse. He says that he, not long ago, he'd heard about a rap singer who had made much more money than most of us can imagine, but he's checked himself out, excuse me, checked himself into rehab, addicted, addicted to sleeping pills. With all he has, there's one thing he still can't get, sleep. Don't these celebrities have the stuff we just read about in Ecclesiastes? He says, yep. True satisfaction is found in Christ. This is what we want our heart to say. This is what we want our mouth to speak. Psalm 36, 7 through 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. This is the message that Jesus gave to the woman at the well. Right? He asked for a drink of water. She's like, why do you need my help? They go through this conversation. He says, well, I have the uh, living water, right? 
She says, well, if you need that, what do you need me for? And he has to explain to her, he's bringing salvation. She says, our ancestors, Jacob, worshiped on this mountain. He says, I know Jacob, right? He, he gives the, the um, he quenches the thirst that we have with something that we can't do. We, we try and, I'm reminded of Louis Zamperini, there's a story of Unbroken, that movie or the book that you've read that uh, they get uh, shot down in their airplane, they crash, they're in this boat for 47 days in the ocean. I can't imagine how thirsty you would be for 47 days, surrounded by water that you can't drink, like how cruel a, a fate that would be. Actually survived became a believer and was an evangelist, but this water that is far better than the things we're chasing come from Christ, and it truly satisfies. Idolatry is a threat to our soul, and these idols wage war against us, and they can really damage us. So to wrap up today, I want to talk about a battle plan. We need a battle plan. We need a specific plan of repentance on the handout you have, uh, excuse me, on the handout I gave you last week, uh, there were lots of questions and the, these probing statements that I hope that you took the time to work through. The idea was, how do I identify what the idols may be in my own life? How do I identify what it is that I am desiring or wanting or living for other than Christ? But that's only the first step. We don't want to just identify the bad thing and go, there you go, that's the bad stuff, see ya. Like, that's hopeless. That's terrible. We don't want to do that, right? So um, what we want to do then is, now what do we do with that? That's part of the handout here, but I want to walk you through something. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 4. We're going to do it real quick here. So as you're finding that, in, in verse 17, um, he starts talking about the way, he, so he's writing to Christians here, he's writing to believers, and what he is saying is, he starts talking about how unbelievers live, okay? And he's talking about, you don't no longer walk as the Gentiles do, so unbelievers, right? And Gentiles, unbelievers walk in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in, in them due to their hardness of hearts. Here's that word callous again. They become callous and then given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, right? So Paul, as he writes, often the way that Paul writes letters is that he takes a, a time to write out some teaching. He's giving doctrine. He's giving us all these things that like, this is how, this is what he's going to write. It depends on what, he's, what teaching he's doing, but he does this. And then what he'll do is he'll take that and he kind of summarizes it. I've done all this teaching in these first few chapters. Now I'm going to kind of summarize that into, all right, here's the way it is. And then gets practical on what to do with the summary. I like how Paul does that because he'll, he'll take some time and then, okay, that's really helpful. So what he's doing is like, I'm going to summarize. Here's all the things that uh, unbelievers, this is how they live. And he says here, but that's not the way you learn Christ. And he's assuming that you've heard about him, you were taught in him. I'm, are, are you believers? Yes, you're believers. As, uh, the truth is in Jesus here. And this is what he says to do. Don't live that way. 
as an unbeliever. As a believer, you're to put off your old self that belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and the true righteousness and holiness. So he does that. That's kind of the summary here. And now he gets very practical in these next few verses. Um, He's going to give us a few ideas of ways that we can put off, renew our mind, and put on. Okay? He's going to give us a number of examples of ways to do that. Now, in this, this is not an exhaustive list. This is not all the things that we would put off and put on. It's not all the ways that we renew our mind. He's just giving us some examples here. So for you, if you've taken the time last week in that handout, I know I'm going through this pretty quickly. We will revisit this again in in other uh, lessons. So if you say like, wow, this is really quick. I know. But um, buckle your seatbelt. We're going to keep going. So... um, If you took the time last week to go through and identify some idols or some areas that you think might be an idol here, now how do we do do battle, right? What I just told you is Paul says, well, don't live that way. Live this way. Like, oh, that's helpful. Just stop doing it. That's not what I'm saying. Don't just stop doing it. Um, You may need to, but that isn't the, the end of everything here. Let's go this first example. Let's say that your idol is lying. You want to lie, whatever, right? He says, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Okay? So, the put-off is stop lying. Okay? The put-on, I'm going to stop lying, but I've got to replace that with something. Sometimes we call this the put-off, put-on principle or the replacement principle is what we're talking about here. I've I'm, I'm, got to stop lying. I've got to start telling the truth. Oftentimes what we do is I'm lying. I'm just going to stop it. Okay, oh, I've recognized something in my heart that I'm doing, it's bad, it's wrong. I'm just going to stop it. Well, if I don't replace it with the right thing, it doesn't help, it doesn't last. And that's one of the reasons why we go, why do I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I want to do? Because I'm, I'm not doing the, the right thing here. Now, the really important piece with this isn't just stop lying, start telling the truth. That seems very simple and easy. Well, let's just do that. Well, we've got to be able to renew our mind in this. If you read that, here is the thing that we've got to be teaching ourselves, understanding, remembering, is that we are members of one another, okay? That's the renewing the mind in this, in this here, what he's saying. The principle is this, how is that renewing my mind? How does that help me tell the truth? Well, if I think about the church as a body, like we see Paul talk about Christ as the head and we are members of one body, when I am lying to somebody else, Things are not operating the way they should. We should operate the way we should. When I lie, things don't work right. So we can think about it like a physical body. If the eye is lying to my hand, my eye lies to my hand, I go to take a bite, the eye tells me that where I'm going is not in the right place, I may actually poke myself in the eye. You see that lying makes it, now I'm hurt. It hurt the body. Things aren't working the way they're supposed to. So if we look about this in in real life here, I lie about somebody else. Now, I say Riley did something they didn't actually do, and people now are going to Riley and saying, hey, you need to stop doing that. It's like, I didn't do that, right? So now we've got the body like dealing with a problem that actually isn't a problem. The problem's me. I lied. I made something up. 
So that is, that we've got to deal with that. We've got to renew our mind there. Let me go one, one other one, and we'll wrap up our time here. Um, Ephesians 4.29, this is a good one. I'm skipping through uh, because of, for time here. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, and you could also put in there or typed on social media, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, put off corrupting talk. What is corrupting talk? It can be all kinds of things. It can be th- teardowns, tearing somebody down. You ever been around somebody that tells a, says something that's cutting, and you go, wow, that was hurtful, and they go, I was only kidding. Most of the time, no, they weren't. They just didn't want to be put on the spot, or they wanted to make you feel, oh, you're being too sensitive. Oh, put it on you instead of me that I should have guarded my tongue and been careful with the way I spoke, right? We got to be careful. Lying is corrupting talk, put downs, cussing. We could go down a list. What is corrupting talk, right? Open up Facebook and read the first 10 things that you see posted on there. Five of them are going to be corrupting talk. Sorry. That's another thing I could talk about. But anyway, uh, we've got, so no corrupting talk. That's what we got to put off. What's the put on? Now, get, answer me this. What, in this verse, verse 29, what would be the put on? If I'm supposed to put off corrupting talk, what do I put on? What type of speech? He doesn't say stop talking. <laughs> Some people just need to stop talking. But what, what, what type of speaking should I put on? Encouragement. Why? Why would we want to build others up? You don't want to tear people down right? That's that renewing the mind. I am to put encouraging speak, speak encouragingly, that it builds others up, that it may give grace to those who hear. So often what we see in this world today, the type of speech is not giving grace. It's not building others up. It's tearing them down, okay? So when you recognize your idol, okay, this is something that I want to change. First of all, let's figure out what I need to do different. Sometimes it's the exact opposite, right? Other times it's something different. I need to do something different and then recognize why I do that. This handout will help you do that, okay? So take some time, just like you did with the one last week, take a little bit of time to review that. Um, maybe make it part of your quiet time again, a day or two, pray through it and see how, what are the things that you need to work on and, and how you can do that. Uh, I've gone way over, so let me pray. Lord God, what a, um, uh, a great time here to open up your word. Lord, we do thank you that you have given us your word that has the answers for life. Lord, we struggle to know how to do the right things, but your word teaches us. You've given us your Holy Spirit that helps us. And Lord, we do ask you that you would continue to do that. Help us to recognize, root out idols and put them to death. Lord, we can't do that alone. We need your help. We ask you for that. Lord, we thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.